The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Bev Burgess, co-author of Account-Based Growth, Unlocking Sustainable Value Through Extraordinary Customer Focus. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Bev Burgess to talk about the book she has co-authored with Tim Shercliffe, Account-Based Growth, Unlocking Sustainable Value Through Extraordinary Customer Focus, published by Kogan Page. Bev Burgess is passionate about the critical role marketing can play in accelerating business growth. Her specialism is the marketing and selling of business services built through a combination of postgraduate study and the privilege of working with 40 of the world's most influential firms, primarily in the technology and professional services sectors. Bev's background includes senior marketing roles at British Gas, Epson, and Fujitsu, and she was a senior vice president at ITSMA, where she led the global ABM practice and ITSMA's European operations for many years. Bev first codified ABM as a marketing strategy while managing director of ITSMA Europe in 2003. Today, Bev is a founder and managing principal at Inflection Group, delivering thought leadership, consulting, and training to companies around the world that are designing, developing, and implementing account-based growth programs. Bev holds an MBA in strategic marketing and a Bachelor of Science honors degree in business and ergonomics. She is a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Marketing and has served as an international trustee. Her first book, Marketing Technology as a Service, was published by Wiley in 2010, exploring proven techniques to create value through services based on an infrastructure of technology. Her most recent book, A Practitioner's Guide to Account-Based Marketing, written with Dave Munn, published by Kogan Page in 2017 and 2021, explains how to use ABM to accelerate growth in strategic accounts. Both editions of that book were featured on the Marketing Book Podcast, episodes 117 and 373 with Dave Munn. Executive Engagement Strategies, published by Kogan Page in 2020, explains how to have conversations that deepen executive relationships and build sustainable growth with key clients. And interesting fact, she was a competitive ballroom dancer. Bev, congratulations on account-based growth and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here with you. So you earned your MBA at the University of Hull. Don't think I don't notice these things, Bev. I recently interviewed another author who earned an MBA there, Emmanuel Probst, most recently the author of Assemblage. Yes, I, I can't say I came across him. <laughs> he was there just a few years after you, but he's a French gentleman who naturally lives in Southern California, and uh, he's a marketing book podcast listener, so... Emmanuel, bonjour, monsieur. So, Bev, I have to say, you've really been playing hard to get with me. And I know you don't know that, but as I've mentioned, I've interviewed your ABM co-author, Dave Munn, twice over the years. And I was starting to wonder, what does it take to get to interview Bev Burgess? <laughs> so, finally, I, you know, I reached out to you, and I, I was so worried you were going to say, oh, Douglas, could you interview my co-author for that one? <laughs> But great. I appreciate the fact that I'm finally able to interview you. Well, it's, it, you know, I was told at a very young age, it's, it's good to play hard to get. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it is. And as the father of a daughter, I can't agree more. So, you know, just about every month or, or more frequently, I hear from a listener 
asking for a book recommendation on account-based marketing. And I always send a link to the interview I did with Dave Munn. This is the second interview. And people really seem to appreciate it. Just last week, I got a... I got another one. So I have to say, I was delighted to see that Professor Malcolm McDonald provided a blurb for your book. I've interviewed him twice and just thoroughly enjoyed his books and and getting to know him. Oh, he's one of my heroes. I, I absolutely love Malcolm. And, you know, I, even when I was before Hull, the first degree, I was studying his books. He's written over 45 books, I think, and he's still curious about how marketing's developing. Um, he still reaches out when he hears about something new and tries to think about how does it how does it fit into the wealth of um, information he's built up over the years. And he's really good fun. <laughs> yes. Oh, great sense of humor, a, a great attitude. And a little bit of trivia that I happen to know, he likes Sauvignon Blanc. So if you want to send him a <laughs> bottle of wine there, just... Uh... <laughs> Go there. I want to read what he wrote. I won't try to imitate him, but I just thoroughly enjoyed uh, getting to, to, to interview him. He wrote, in business life, I cannot think of anything more satisfying than creating value for customers and, in the process, creating value for all stakeholders, including the planet. A few years ago, when account-based marketing first emerged, I said that it was a paradigm shift for the marketing domain. I have not changed my view. Please read this book to find out why. Incidentally, both authors are brilliant. How can you not love <laughs> a blurb like that? <laughs> it's very special, isn't it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to read a brief section from the intro. You write, half of the profitable revenue for many B2B companies comes from just 3% of their customers. This book explores the phenomenon in more detail and how companies are choosing to respond, particularly with their top customers, but also how they manage the 97% of customers that make up the other half of the revenues. Some companies, as you will read later, have arrived at this imbalance by design and others almost by accident. But whichever it is, although the customer is king, to quote an old adage, clearly not all customers are equal. Over the last 20 years, the idea that a company should focus on its most important customers, treat them as a market in their own right, and allocate marketing resources to build highly personalized marketing plans has taken hold. Account-based marketing emerged in the 2010s and is now recognized as a key element of B2B marketing. This is particularly true where complex, customized, high-consideration purchases are the norm, sometimes with individual deals worth hundreds of millions of dollars or annual recurring revenues running to tens of millions. This is not just about marketing, however. It never was. It's about how a company becomes customer-centric across multiple processes and teams. And it's about growth and, more specifically, how to grow profitably with this huge imbalance between customers, large and small. So just to give the listener a sense of how the book is organized, it's in four parts. And let me just briefly outline what they are. Part one makes the case for account-based growth. And then part two outlines the four essential elements that need to be aligned at company level for success. And then part three looks at each of the key customer-facing teams like account management and sales, marketing, customer success. And then the fourth part is very short. It's an assessment tool for companies to use to determine you know, how they stack up. And because I've read the book, I'm going to let you, the listener, in on a little special offer. At the very end of the book, uh, Bev mentions that for those who want to determine how they stack up against others for them, to contact you directly, and there's even a, the email is in the book, if you need it, let me know. And you will give them access to an online version, an online survey that includes like a radar graph that compares their results with others uh, in your database. And is that also, um, Bev, is that also like broken down to their vertical or their, their industry? It can be. It depends, you know, if we've got a decent sample, big enough to, to provide an average, but small enough to... Um, or I should say, large enough to provide an average, but still disguising who the individual um, companies are, because we don't want to break any confidences, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so that's uh, very generous. And I hope folks will uh, reach out to you and, and, and do that, if it makes sense. And you may want to read the book first to um, make sure this is, this is for you. Now, you talk about account-based marketing in the book but only after the first 182 pages. <laughs> only at chapter 8 out of 11 do you talk about marketing. And not surprisingly, by then, you have clearly made the case that ABM can't operate in 
isolation. So given that so many people ask me for uh, advice on books to read about ABM, and I've already had this question from listeners after I posted the picture of your book on LinkedIn, do you think that now that this book is out, people should actually read this book first and then read the most recent edition of the uh, Practitioner's Guide to Account-Based Marketing? I think it depends who you are. So if if you're a CMO and you're thinking, how do I organize my marketing team and my marketing investment? And you're, you know, you're in business to business, you've got the the kind of 80-20 spread of customers. We can talk about that mm-hmm. in, in a minute. Um, then you probably want to start with this book. If you're a marketer that's getting to grips with account-based marketing, you've been given your first ABM role, um, perhaps you're just setting up a program in your region or your business unit, then you might want to start with the other book and then put it into a wider context. So it depends who you are. Yes, I'm thinking, and I'm going to ask you about this in a few minutes, about some specifics about marketing leaders or, or marketers who want to try to get their company moving in the right direction like so many listeners <laughs> are doing. <laughs> I would think that they would they would want to read that first, uh, this book first, and then go into the ABM part because first they have to get the buy-in, and without buy-in, I don't know how any of this works. Oh, you're absolutely right. And actually, you mentioned the executive engagement book, and that's another chapter in the third part of this book, but we don't get to it until the third part. And of course, in a chapter, you can't cover everything that you you cover in a whole book. So. Really, those other books are great places to bounce off into when you want to know more detail. Absolutely. And you mentioned even more books to for, for further reading. So that was really helpful. And I found myself going down all kinds of book rabbit holes this week, <laughs> investigating all these other books. So let's assume folks aren't you know familiar with account-based growth. So let, let me ask you, what is account-based growth? Why is it emerging as one of the most powerful strategies to achieve profitable growth? Well, account-based growth is really a strategy that, that you can play alongside um, growth in a country, growth in a business unit, growth in a vertical sector. And we're used to creating plans to grow in those different areas. But we're less used to saying, okay, if we want to grow with our existing customers, what does that look like? And if we want to be really selective in prospects and only choose those that we think could be the top customers of the future, what does that look like? So this book is all about growing with the customers that offer you the best opportunity in future um, and and kind of focusing your resources on those customers, which isn't what happens today in many yes. companies. Oh, yes. So the, I would say the linchpin of the book, if I may, it was is the 80-20 dynamic. Explain what that is and, and the fractal nature of it. Of it. Oh, you know, I, this is something I w- wish I'd known 30 years ago when I started out on my career. Um, and it's the gift I think this book gives everybody. The 80-20 principle uh, or Pareto's law uh, was developed by an Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto, late um, 19th century. And the, the lovely story is that he was in his garden and he was collecting peas from his plants and he noticed that 20% of his plants were giving him 80% of his yield. And then he looked at the wealth in Italy and the UK and he found that 20% of families held 80% of the wealth. Uh, and there's been all sorts of experiments over the years looking at this phenomena which happens across nature and it also happens across business. So the Total Quality Movement was based on it uh, with Joseph Duran. Uh, Richard Koch published about it and talked about, you know, 20% of your inputs, like your salespeople, giving you 80% of your outputs, your revenues. But it's never been applied to customers in the way that we're doing it in this book. And the, we did a piece of research early last year to find out whether in B2B companies, this actually holds true. And and we found that it did. Uh, we had a suspicion that it would, but I mean, it was just mind-blowing when we found that it did. And as you said, it's fractal, which means it's a, a pattern that repeats itself. So if you've got a thousand companies, 200 of them will give you 80% of your profitable revenue. But within that 200, 40 of them will give you 80% of the 80% and so on and so forth. And you get to the 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 point where in our research, we found just over 3% of customers will be giving you over half of your profitable growth. That's amazing. But do you get a lot of pushback from companies or executives saying, 
Well, that may be true mathematically, but Bev, we're different. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and actually, it's really good fun. There's two, there's two pushbacks. The first is, oh, that doesn't, that might be the case in other companies, but it doesn't happen here. <laughs> and, and then you go off and you, you collect the data and you realize that it does happen here. Um, and then you get the, oh, but, you know, we, we can't stop doing some of the things we're doing for the 80%. You know, the future might come from those 80%. Uh, and they're still not laser focused about which companies in the 80% can drive growth, you know, at, at a really significant sustainable level. So there's two, two points of pushback. But what we have seen is when companies put this principle at the heart of um, their strategy, the most amazing thing happens. And, and you'll probably know, <laughs> having read the book, that there's three, two, a case study and two viewpoints from Accenture in the book. Mm-hmm. And they're a classic example of a company that's, that really gets this and is investing appropriately. There are so many great case studies uh, <laughs> to uh, you know, show how it's working in the wild, but also to arm folks uh, with uh, additional insights on how to implement it at their own company. But, Bev, this is the part of the interview where I frighten the listener to death. I want to quote <laughs> from just page eight. You know, you scared the hell out of your reader here. This is uh, for, the, for the marketers. You, you write, in a recent discussion we had with executives in a large enterprise software company, they shared some analysis that in a total customer base of 7,000 customers, 5,000 of them were a rounding, meaning like a, a rounding error, really insignificant, when it came to revenue and lost them money at the bottom line when direct costs were taken into account. So 5,000 of these of 7,000 customers were not only insignificant, but they were costing them money. Then you go on to write, perversely, (laughs) the marketing team were generating leads at a ratio of 10,000 leads in this group of 5,000 less important customers to just one lead in their top 10% of accounts. <laughs> it brought this to mind. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. <laughs> you write that you should grow your biggest accounts, not just defend them. There's a lot of psychology in your book. What? Okay, so you've got these really great accounts, big accounts. What are the fears that companies have of growing <laughs> their large accounts? Yeah, that's a great question. And and actually, a few people that we, we speak to, they'll say, well, we don't want to invest marketing in those big accounts because they're already really big. <laughs> and then we say to them, okay, well, what, but what share of wallet do you have? So they may be big to you, but how much of the spend on your kind of category of services do you have? And they'll say, well, we have about 10%. And, and we say, okay, so if you grew your revenue by 50% in that account, you'd still only have 15% of their wallet. Uh, and, you know, the light bulbs go off and, and um, they realize that there is an, a massive opportunity to grow those accounts. But even if you have a big share of wallet, then the company itself will still be growing. So you'll hopefully be growing with them. Yes. Are so they, there's lots of good reasons. Are they afraid that. that they'll bother them or they'll kill the goose that's laying the golden egg? I think there's some of that. Um, but that tends to be where you get the really siloed, you know, marketing working over here with the 10,000 mm. leads in the least important accounts. Right, right, um, right. But as I said before, some companies get it and they realize that actually, first of all, we want to defend these accounts against our competitors who are coming to, t- to uh, eat our lunch. Mm-hmm. But also we want to find ways to grow with these accounts. And there's there's some great stories in the book. I love the one from um, Paul Laguerre, uh, the viewpoint from Deloitte, where, where he's talking about, you know, creating new ecosystems to solve some of the world's biggest problems with some of his most important accounts. And I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it. So another line that just jumped off the page at me is you write, Growth, no matter what, is not a sensible strategy. <laughs> Growth, no matter what, is not a sensible strategy. How many of the listeners have been sitting around a conference room table and the CEO is slamming their fist on the table saying, we got to grow, damn it, now get out there and grow. Explain the perils, before we put this, this section to bed, explain the perils of the long tail. It seems so seductive. <laughs> it's terrifying. 
<laughs> so I think we've all probably worked in companies where you can you can list the top 10, 20, 50, 100 customers, you know, who who you have great relationships with, you co-invest with, you co-create with, and you grow together. Uh, and then there's 10,000 other customers that will be in tiers. So some of them will be, you know, um, in the tier underneath your top, if you like. But a lot of them are taking a lot of time to service, um, to contract with, and actually the profit you're getting from them is minimal. Uh, and they're never going to be the size of, of your biggest customers. So, you know, we really have to stand back and think, well, how much do we want to invest in those customers? And are they better being served by someone else? Mm-hmm. Or that's controversial in a different way. Or served in a different way. And I think that whole piece about it's come out with the customer success um, movement and particularly at Salesforce where, you know, they recognize there's a high touch tier of customers, a mid touch tier and a tech touch. You know, let's leverage technology to serve those customers. So, Bev, in the book, you write about the changing nature of business to business buyers. I I marveled at that, (laughs) but I, I have to wonder why that had to be included in the book. Is there still a lot of denial about the changing nature of B2B buyers at this point? I think it varies by country, actually, and by sector. Um, And I'm lucky enough to work across sectors. and, And there's a lot of talk, particularly in the technology sector in B2B companies, uh, about, you know, customers doing 80% of the research before they call anyone and um, increasing numbers of people in the buying unit and increasing professionalism of uh, procurement and so on. But in other sectors, that realization hasn't always dawned, which is terrifying again, because of course, the customers are the same customers. So, if you're a a massive telecoms, um, global telecoms company, uh, yes, you'll have a strategic technology supplier, but you'll also have a strategic facilities management supplier and a strategic bank and so on and so forth. And you will expect the same kind of attention from all of them. So you mentioned the research that you fielded for the, the book. Tell us a little bit more about the research and the key findings. I, I have to admit, some of them were surprising. <laughs> Yes. Well, we, as we said, we decided to prove to ourselves that 80-20 was actually happening and also test out what people were doing about it. Um, and we found, as I said before, yes, indeed, there is an 80-20 split with customers and profitable revenue. Um, but what we found was people tend to have a top account program. That's all good. They don't tend to tier it beyond two tiers. So there isn't that recognition that, you know, you might have four or five different categories of customer that you might want to treat differently. There, there's, there isn't, there's account planning. So most people have an account plan for their most strategic accounts, but it isn't like a business plan. You know, often it's a quota, a group together quota of all the different business units all trying to sell into that customer. You know, what are we trying to sell this year? And it's last year plus 10% or something. So it's not a business plan in the way that we would understand it. It sounds more like a, a sales goal. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Sales goal. <laughs> which, which, uh, not surprisingly, let me help with the transition. You write about how this, uh, it's, it's, this planning tends to be dominated by the sales function. Yeah, that, that was quite scary in a way because it is dominated by sales. And, Occasionally, half of the time, marketing um, and finance might get involved and, and, and to a lesser extent, executives uh, and strategy teams. But the, the people with the most short-term mentality are the ones doing the planning. And actually, they're the ones choosing the accounts as well that, to go into the top program. So, it's all a little bit built on sand at the moment. Yes. And not to take any away from the our friends in sales, I mean, they've got a job to do, and I can completely understand why why that's happening. In, I, as I recall, I think it was 29%, let's see, I've got my notes here, only 29% integrated sales, marketing, and customer success teams in this effort, and only 32% are using data in their top accounts to make better decisions about account across sales, marketing, customer service. One other is only a third of the senior executives call on executives in the target accounts at least quarterly, (laughs) which made me want to say, 
get out of the office. <laughs> what, are you, what are you people doing? And then what was the other one? Uh, now, this was interesting. Only 20% are able to measure the net profit contribution coming from their most important customers, which I think, I gather, that's why there hasn't been much segmentation around uh Customers. In other words, it tends to be focused on segmentation is usually focused on like products or services or industry sectors or, or geography. Is that what you think is leading to the lack of segmentation around customers? Absolutely right. And I think, you know, it, it's a reflection of the kind of inside out thinking, you know, mm-hmm. our business unit, the way we're structured, you know, the products that we have, what we want to sell, you know, that that's all an inside out mindset. And, and it's reflected in some of the stats that come out in the book, I think. Mm. Well, now let's get into some of the drama uh, <laughs> about aligning internally for growth. You write that, and I, every listener is probably thinking, oh, this is only at my company, but all too often, selecting customers for a top account program is a politically charged, informal, and emotional affair. <laughs> Do tell. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've seen so many of these situations where we say, okay, let's take an objective approach to selecting accounts for the top customer program uh, and people throw out a few criteria and then quickly start throwing out names. So what we're arguing here is that you need a more robust objective approach that that stops people saying, well, my account has to be in the top program because, you know, it's my biggest account. Well, it may be, but it may not be the company's biggest account. You know, there, there's such emotional charge around these discussions. So the best thing to do is to say, okay, which are the most attractive accounts to us over the next, I don't know, five years, say, and where can we be strongest given our competitive strengths in the market? Where do we have an advantage? And, and you come up with criteria that helps you think through those two axes, and then you score all of your accounts or your top accounts on those axes, on those um, criteria, and they come up in a map. And the beautiful thing about that is you put the map up in front of all of the, you know, sales leaders, business unit (laughs) leaders, strategy leaders, and you say, okay, here's what it looks like. Let's decide how we're going to invest our resources now. And it's very difficult for them to move uh, an account on the map without going back to the criteria and saying you've got the scoring wrong. So it's a real, it's a leveler. And I recommend marketers do that if they're not doing it already. Yes, it's like you're painting them into a corner. Oh, great. <laughs> I had to laugh when you say that, you know, focusing on this 80-20 approach, it starts to create some odd effects and tension between sales and marketing because, uh, you know, allocating allocating what budgets you do have to have the most impact. So, Bev Burgess, you're, you're British. Let me ask you a question. Are you a fan of uh, Monty Python? <laughs> of course. <laughs> I am your king. Well, you made the fatal error of mentioning the Holy Grail in your book. Not Monty Python, you just Holy Grail, and it was like, okay, okay. The, the, yeah. And you're on the Marketing Book Podcast. So that You write in the book, the Holy Grail outcome here is to identify where you are over-allocating resources, causing you to reevaluate how to reduce the cost to serve in the bottom 80% of the customer base and to be able to increase the resources dedicated not just to the most important customers today, but also to develop a more forensic and targeted investment in a group of prospects or smaller customers that could become the top customers of tomorrow. I'm sorry, I just I just couldn't resist talking about Monty Python. Shut up! Will you shut up? So explain the phenomenon you write about on page 74. And this is a little bit in the weeds for the sales folks, but you talk about sales qualifying out opportunities. Can you explain what that is? I found that very interesting. Yeah, this is, this is something that companies don't tend to be brilliant at. So you find an opportunity, uh, you may be given an opportunity from one of those 10,000 leads that marketing is creating, uh, and you think, okay, I'm going to run with this because I need to make my quota. And a classic example is when you're invited to um, respond to a, a tender or, or, or a request for proposal, and you do so, but you don't know anyone, <laughs> you've got no relationships, there may be a big prize, but you're you're being added in, you know, to compare prices across perhaps the two favourites in the tender. Uh, but you carry on pursuing that opportunity and maybe you get marketing involved to help you look good in the opportunity. And of course, you lose. Now, earlier on, you could have said, 
what are our chances of winning here? Do we want this customer? Is this customer going to be a top um, tier customer for us in future? Yes, no. If yes, do we know anyone um, involved in this opportunity? Do we have any relationships? Can we find a coach? You know, yes, no. If no, you really seriously need to think about whether to invest money in that opportunity. You make it very clear in another part of the book where you're saying if you're if you're responding to an RFP, and I've always found this to be true, and you don't know anybody there and you didn't know it was coming, <laughs> you're really wasting your time. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and this can be millions of dollars. Yes. Millions. Oh, oh, oh. So the thing that probably surprised me the most from the research was that only seven percent of the companies surveyed in your research involve customers in the development of their account plans. That seems like such a good idea. Why are so few companies doing it? And how are the successful companies actually involving their customers in their plan development? That's a great question. I think the reason why people don't do it, first of all, as we said earlier, account plans aren't always well created. You know, there's a huge variety of quality, even in the same companies. So, the first thing is to actually get the account planning done correctly. But then showing an account plan to a customer and discussing what you perhaps want to do with that customer going forward, you've got to have the right relationship with the customer to do that. And and I love the fact that there's almost a mirror here. So, we're busy saying, okay, who are our strategic customers? Who do we want to go after? But of course, the customers are doing the same thing. They're saying, who are our strategic suppliers? Who do we want to build our business on, you know, in the next 10, 20 years? Uh, And where you've got strategic to strategic relationships, so you both see each other as strategic, it's much easier to plan together in terms of what are the opportunities for us going forward? How do we want to scope out what we're going to do? Who's going to do what? You know, how how much are we investing? What's the R&D involved? So there's a real co-creation kind of relationship there. But if one of you thinks the other is strategic, <laughs> and perhaps the customer thinks, well, actually, no, you, you're quite important to us, but you're not really strategic to our business. Therefore, we just want to get the best value out of you. You know, they're not going to want to have the conversation about where where are we going in future? What are the innovation opportunities? Which is still helpful feedback, although you'd have Absolutely. some work to do. <laughs> and it tells you what you need to do. You yeah. know, you need to get to them to see you as strategic. So how are you going to do that? Yes, I can't resist. This is like really one of my favorite topics. Uh, it's uh, it's so easy to describe, but so unbelievably difficult for companies to do. This is from page 96 where you write, if there is one thing that shines through as being the foundation for a good plan, it, it is that the plan is based on deep customer insight, something all market leaders invest in by working with the relevant customer executives, investing in the research to be able to do this credibly. But well before this, the foundation should be laid by the account team in building a comprehensive picture of the customer's world. Strategic marketing tools and techniques are required here to make sense of what otherwise would simply be a collection of facts and figures. Too often, we have seen hugely detailed account plans with voluminous data about the consumer, yet precious little actionable insight that links the information we have gathered with how we can add value. Let's jump to data. So in the chapter on managing data, technology, and operations, you quote Clive Humby, a British mathematician and entrepreneur in the field of data science and customer-centric business strategies. And in 2006, he coined the phrase, data is the new oil. Michael Palmer of the ANA, the Association of National Advertisers, expanded on Humby's quote, saying, data is just like crude. It's valuable, but if unrefined, it cannot really be used. And you go on to write that the winners of tomorrow will be those who can get as close to their target customer groups as possible by using their own data and data they can procure outside of their organization to to better understand and serve their customers. And this is even more important for your top customers. So I want to go to page... 108, and just ask you, broadly speaking, what data does a company need to build a 360-degree view of top accounts? Because there's a lot of data, and just because you can collect data doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be useful. <laughs> That's so true. And and of course, this, this I'm going to say data, <laughs> can come from outside the business or inside it. And one of the first challenges is, you know, just finding out what you know, what you already have in 
hopefully not too siloed systems across your own business. Um, but the kinds of things you need, you need to know firmographics. So these are the kind of corporate demographics of the consumer world. Um, so who are the individuals? Uh, who is, what's the company size? What's the structure? What's, where's it located? Who owns it? And so on. Technographics. Um, and this is a combination of the word technology and demographic. And it looks, particularly because we're often in the tech sector when we're doing this kind of work, you know, what technology is the company operating? Is it an SAP house? Is it a Microsoft house? What's going on? Psychographics. This is more human data about the beliefs of an organization. What are its values? What are its motivations? Um, and perhaps some of the perceptions and behavior of your customers. And then we look at intent. And there's a huge amount written about intent data. Uh, and, and this is the ability to understand what people in the organization are searching for, what are they interested in, and predict what stage of the buyer journey they're at, and perhaps serve them up something that's relevant to them at that stage. And that often uses keywords or topics. So if you're um, looking at sustainable development goals, for example, you're looking for people who are searching on that because they know they need to report on their progress against them. You know, you can track people from different companies looking for those terms. And then we've got experience data. Uh, and, and I just love this because somehow we've got to get a view of what customers expect and what they're getting and what they think of what they're getting from you. So, <laughs> you know, the kind of satisfaction surveys, but you know, ongoing experiential surveys and feedback. Yes. And you mentioned the technographics. I wonder when you start to look at the technographics, like, like for you, for your company, is that sometimes a a preview or a tell about how siloed <laughs> that organization might be? <laughs> it can be. I mean, and it it's one of the biggest challenges I think people have, whether it will be sorted out now with everything that's going on with AI and Gen AI um, and, and just the investment that's going into data and how to analyze data. Um, let's hope so, because it, it, it has been one of the problems, one of the reasons why we haven't been able to work together around our most important customers, because we don't have the same view of those customers. Mm, yes, absolutely. So, uh, in, uh, related to experience data, I was pleased to see, I think towards the end of the book, you talked, uh, as a related to executive management, but you mentioned uh, Adele Ravella's book, Buyer Personas. I, I, I found that those interviews where you probe for just those five insights, really invaluable. Yeah. Just a real uh, light bulb goes off over the whole organization. So let's jump to what may be the hardest part. You people thought we already covered the hard parts. This is leadership, culture, and change. You write that a commitment to a company-wide approach for top customers to maximize the value delivered to them and drive sustainable, profitable growth has to come from the highest levels of the company. I mean, if, if, if it's not there, I don't see how it works. But you go on to write that typically the larger a company gets, the more likely it is that the company is... Sadly, <laughs> I added that. It's, it's disconnected from providing customer value with executive and senior management spending most of their time on managing the business rather than on uh, directly delivering value to customers. So for those listeners who think their company should be more attuned to the opportunity presented by pursuing an account-based growth strategy and who've taken it upon themselves to enlighten the leadership team <laughs> as to what needs to be done to you know, realize this opportunity. What words of advice does Bev Burgess have for those listeners on trying to gain management buy-in? Well, I think the first thing to do is to get the numbers together. Mm -hmm. You know, we talked about the 80-20 and people yes. not believing <laughs> that their business works like that. So, you know, find a friend in finance, get the numbers together. Um, and then I think when you understand who the top customers are and how important they are, you need to talk to them. You need to understand what they think of you, how they see the future of your relationship with them compared to some of your competitors. And I think the one thing that um, executive leadership do is they listen to their most important customers. Because if you lose one customer at that top level, you need about 256 new customers at the bottom level to fill the hole. No one wants that. Just 256. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, my goodness. So, this again, this really startled me. I, it really got my attention. You mentioned one service business, I guess you all had worked with, with annual revenues of around $150 million. And it turned out they were largely dependent 
on just nine customers. So to follow up, you're right, that many leadership teams do not realize until the data show them that they could focus much more around a relatively small and manageable set of top customers, allocating their own time more productively to these customers and better qualified and more senior resources to these vital relationships. And that can be a game changer for many. It just seems like it's a way of the management team saying, oh, well, that's that seems so much easier. <laughs> what a relief! Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it is a light bulb moment, and uh, you know, managing ten significant customers has got to be easier than trying to stretch your diary across fifty. You know, so uh, and, and there's other people that could be looking after the next fifty. So uh, it, that's what we mean by understanding how the numbers play out for you, and then thinking about how you're going to invest people's time and your budget across the different tiers. Can you talk about how an agile approach to management can help with account-based growth? Yeah, absolutely. Because you can set your goals as a, as a leadership team um, at the beginning of the quarter or the year. Uh, and then, you know, you have your targets that you're working to, you've agreed your priorities, you've agreed who's doing what, off you go. And then maybe you're working in two-week sprints, you come back together and, and you say, has anything changed? Is there anything that we need to respond to that is more important than what we have on the list today? And I think that that view of agile that's anchored in what our customers need, what's changing in our customers' world, is a great way to get people back together and say, are we still working on the right things? Yes. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about account management and sales. And I think it's important to get some definitions out of the way because those may mean different things to almost every listener. I- explain what a key account manager is and an account manager, as outlined in your book. And then explain what key account management is. Well, key account manager is is really a seasoned, experienced leader who is the general manager, if you like, of that account, just as you would have the general manager of a business. And typically, they're dedicated to individual large accounts, strategic accounts. An account manager is, is a kind of junior version of that. So, they may either be representing an individual business unit into one of these big strategic accounts, or they may be looking after three or five or 10, you know, customers in a second tier down. So, they're still taking the customer's point of view, trying to get the best out of their own company into that customer, but they may be spread a little bit more thinly. There's a great quote on page 160 that I'm going to share here. This is a very quotable book, Bev. (laughs) Right, as it related to account management and sales. In this information-rich age, it is possible to know a huge amount about your customer and the individuals that make up the decision-makers and influencers that work there. As one senior executive who is responsible for a large global industrial customer of a technology company remarked, she expects herself and indeed the whole account team to become students of the customer, meaning They become avid consumers of information, particularly in terms of the strategies, objectives, and key metrics that are important to the customer. And then I want to contrast that with what you have on page, I think it's 171, where you write, and this is a word of warning to folks, if you give the senior salesperson the title of global account manager and send them off to the customer, they can see right through them from day one. (laughs) The people you need in these sorts of positions are light years away from traditional salespeople. And you go on to write about how these folks do not want to be sold to by that person. Yeah, that's right. And that's um, Professor Malcolm McDonald again, you know, some research that he did. Your senior customers do not want to be sold to. They they want to have exploratory conversations with you. You know, they want to engage with you and imagine the future and and how you're going to get there. They do not want someone who doesn't really understand them and their business knocking on the door and and trying to sell a, a particular product, service or solution. So, I think that's really important. And we know from the interview with Ninian Wilson in the book, right at the beginning of the book, he's the CEO of Vodafone Procurement Globally. He says, you know, of his strategic suppliers, he expects a dedicated account team, but he expects them to be led by a seasoned executive. Uh, and we know of one um, company where there was a, a general manager for um, a, country, a, a country out in APAC who came back to um 
I think it was the UK, and was given the most important account. That They, they were seen as the same sort of level of responsibility. Uh, and that's what we mean by general manager. Okay, so where does this leave sales in the equation? I think sales are really important because actually what you're trying to do as that key account manager is is understand the world of the customer, understand your own business, and then be able to match the two and bring the most useful product, services, solutions, contracting mechanisms, whatever it might be, to bear for your customer. You won't have the depth of knowledge that you need to do that across your, your own portfolio. So you need salespeople that really understand elements of your portfolio to work alongside you. Mm-hmm. So there clearly is a place for them. Just be careful how you do that, manager. Okay, so finally, I've always wanted to ask Bev Burgess this question. What is account-based marketing? <laughs> it is treating individual accounts as markets in their own right. So if you imagine you might have, I don't know, maybe you've got a marketing manager for Ireland um, and you say, okay, you know, the, the opportunity here is 500 million a year. Well, you may have a, a, a marketing manager for Bank of America and the opportunity there is, you know, it could be a billion a year. Why would you not have a marketing manager, marketing plan, you know, marketing campaigns for those two things? They're both significant opportunities. It's just that one of them is an individual account. Yes, let me quote from page 184. I mean, we, I, by marketing book podcast law, I'm not allowed to speak to Bev Burgess without mentioning account-based marketing. So <laughs> you write on page 184, since the early 2000s, ABM has proved itself to deliver a consistently higher return on investment than traditional B2B marketing, with the inevitable consequence that demand for ABM surged in those companies that had adopted it. And I remember my first interview with Dave Munn, uh, about the practitioner's guide. <laughs> the big thing that surprised me is when he said, one of the biggest problems is that when you roll out ABM for, let's say, a larger company, and it works well in one division, suddenly everybody wants it. <laughs> I got the impression he was like thinking, let's pump the brakes here. Just let's make sure we do it right. And everyone's like, no, no, I want, I want what they got. That's so true. It's so true. You, your biggest problem at the beginning is selling the concept. And then once you've solved the, con- sold the concept and, and proved the business case, your new biggest problem is coping with the demand that comes from the business. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's like a tsunami. <laughs> I want to uh, just pick out a couple things from that chapter that just tickled me. Uh, 195, you write, while you can leverage the systems and data you already have and buy in additional information is needed, there's no better route to building a deep understanding of what's driving the account and the stakeholders within it than talking first to the people in your company that work with the customer and then to the customers themselves. (laughs) And yet, (laughs) the number of ABMers who use this primary market research approach to understand their accounts are few and far between. Why do you think that is? I think there's a few reasons. I think in some companies, <laughs> the account directors don't want marketing people going and talking to their customers. They don't trust what they're going to say. Maybe marketing doesn't have the reputation it should be in those companies. Maybe the people in marketing aren't able to go and have a senior business conversation with a, with a customer. You know, there could be lots of reasons there. In other situations, the marketers perhaps don't feel they're confident enough. Um, they don't know how to to pick up the phone and, and ask for a meeting with a customer. That's not something they're typically used to doing. So I think there's a few blockers to get over. One easy way to make a start is to offer to go and brief a customer on a particular piece of thought leadership that's been created or um, you know, to develop a case study on the work that your company's been doing with that important customer. Uh, and to start building a relationship perhaps with the marketing person in the customer organization or perhaps with the CSR person or the DEI champion. So finding ways to perhaps not go to the um, main buyer, but perhaps to some of the influencers around the edges where you can have a, a useful relationship. And that's part of the idea that, you know, you're going to have multiple relationships across a customer organization. One last question about the ABM section is that you remind readers that they need to understand their competitors. And yet it seems to be a real blind spot. Why, why is that? Is there 
why is there not more focus on, or at least an acknowledgement of what the competitors are doing? Maybe maybe it's because it's hard. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's harder to get um, data on on the particular people from the competitor organization who are in your customer day in, day out, unless you talk to your own people or you talk to the, your customer about it, which is why those two steps are so important. But as a bare minimum, when I'm creating an ABM plan with a customer, you know, we, we look at what's going on um, in their customer. We look at their relationship with that particular cu- customer. We look at what they're trying to achieve, what the ambition is with the customer. And then we look at what the competitors are doing. So at bare minimum, we need to know which competitors are in there. And then we need to look at what those competitors are saying publicly about that particular sector. Do they have a case study with that customer? Do they have profiles of any people that are, you know, working in that customer that we know of? So there's some there's some um, bare minimum data, I think, we need to get on customers and competitors. And you can see some of that through relationships on LinkedIn and, and so on. Absolutely. So in the chapter on customer success, which we mentioned earlier, I had to chuckle. You write that we have used the term customer success throughout this book to mean going beyond just delivering what you said you would deliver in terms of the contract you have with customers to focus much more on the customer's outcomes, i.e., are they deriving value from their relationship with you and is it helping drive their success? And then a couple of pages later, you write, while much has been written over the last 30 years about customer satisfaction and customer experience, it seems strange to be talking about customer success as something new. <laughs> Explain what you mean. <laughs> well, I think customer success, it came came out of Salesforce, really. Um, and uh, as a result of the sub- subscription um, economy. So, mm-hmm. you know, where we used to buy a license for a year, now we're paying per user per month. And if we're not happy, if we're not achieving our goals with whatever it is we're buying and subscribe to, we can stop the subscription just like that. Um, and I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we've had a, a gym membership for a year. We couldn't stop it, so we, we had to keep it. But it, once it becomes a rolling monthly membership, if you're not going, it's very easy to switch it off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the whole customer success movement came from, because um, initially Salesforce, then others said, well, actually, if customers aren't getting what they need from our solution, they'll stop buying it. They, they won't subscribe. What, uh, the reason I laugh about it is because back in the 80s, we had, you know, Jan Carlson and SAS and, you know, moments of truth and how to make sure customer experience was great and expectations were met. And, you know, we had all sorts of academics in, in uh, a lot of the American business schools talking about how do we manage service expectations and how do we deliver against them. So, it's not a new concept um, in terms of giving great customer service and delighting the customer. I think what's new is the incentives we give to our own teams are no longer around selling things, um, but they're more about having sold them. How do we make sure those things are being used and the customer's getting what they needed from them? Yes, and what I like about it is that it almost tricks your organization into focusing more on the customer (laughs) than yourself. In other words, you've got some very specific goals. And I can remember years ago, I interviewed Mark Roberge, who was the first head of sales at HubSpot. His book is called uh, The Sales Acceleration Formula. And in the book, he wrote about how they had a lot of churn. And then what he did was they said, okay, you're only going to get part of your commission when you make a sale, but the rest of it's going to come about after they have been a customer for a a year and renewed. (laughs) I got the impression it was almost like overnight, they suddenly started getting much better uh, customers and their churn dropped. So, (laughs) but but they tied it to at least that measure of success. So finally, in the chapter on executive sponsorship and engagement, you write that putting in place executive sponsors across top accounts is a complex business and needs the sponsorship of the CEO and the enthusiastic support of the whole C-suite. Implemented effectively alongside appointing the right key account manager, it is one of the most powerful initiatives a company can take to raise its game with its top customers and one of the secrets in unlocking sustainable, profitable growth. Ignore it at your peril. Because some of your competitors are already doing this, and some of your strategic customers regard it as 
mandatory for a fruitful long-term partnership that maximizes value for both parties. Now, Beth, executive sponsorship almost sounds like the easiest thing to say, but my sense is that it may actually be the most difficult to implement. Is that true or well, you, you have to have the C-suite on board. You have to have your own execs on board. And, and you know, increasingly, I think exec teams are aware of the role they have to play in this. Um, I, I think about Accenture again and the fact that in, in one of their reports to the market, it, it was clear that Julie Sweet, their CEO, was meeting six and a half customer CEOs a week, you know. And I think there's there's probably a few CEOs that as we said right at the beginning of this podcast, are thinking, oh gosh, I've got to get out of the office <laughs> and meet some of these customers. That's quite scary. Um, but that's absolutely what needs to happen. And I think if you've decided that there are 20 accounts that are going to make all the difference to your business over the next 10, 15, 20, 100 years, you need to build really strong relationships at that top level. And that's CEO to CEO. What I've seen some companies do that works really well and Red Hat and um, Virgin Media O2 are in this chapter. They both have great programs. Um, they've divided up the top customers around you know, the C-suite table um, and also to some of the next level down C-suite minus one and two. And they've said, okay, these are the companies that you're going to take a sponsorship interest in. So you're going to meet them quarterly. You're going to understand where we are, have a conversation about how it's going. You're going to discuss what else they might need. You're going to feed back things to us uh, and particularly to the account manager. And we're going to act on any feedback that you get. And it isn't just you know going and playing golf. It's actually having an active interest in that customer and their business. And a word of warning, you write that the quickest way to kill any executive engagement strategy is to match executives with people they don't consider peers. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> measure twice, cut once, folks. But just w uh, one benefit of this that uh, I think uh, might encourage more folks to consider is if you could talk about how executive sponsorship can actually uh, accelerate the sales cycle and uncover additional funding. Yeah, this is a lovely one. And actually, it comes from um, Jane uh, Hiscock at the Farland Group uh, over there in Boston. Um, she says there's three reasons to engage executives. One is that they can accelerate the sales cycle. So, they often get frustrated that things aren't happening faster in their organization. And at that point, they'll come in and say, just get it done. You know, they change the priority uh, of what their team is working on. Oh, the executive on. at the target company is frustrated. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. They get frustrated. Let's just get this deal done. Um, so that can happen. Um, the second thing is that, you know, if if the their team is saying, well, we don't have the budget, they can often say, well, look, this is so important. We're going to reprioritize the budget and here's the extra budget you'd need uh, because they've got the authority to do that. So that's, that's fantastic. And then the third thing is that once they're invested, they know, you know, everything about their organization. Maybe their teams don't have quite such a holistic view. They can help you shape your solution so that it really fits where their organization is today and where it needs to go tomorrow. So they can have those kind of future looking conversations with you. And those three things are really powerful. You mentioned that it's they are more likely, the executives at the target company are more likely to engage in co-creation. Oh, it seems when you've got their fingers on it and they're actively involved in, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe dreaming about a better future, you are really on the fast track at that point. Yeah, absolutely. I, I spoke to one CEO once and it was on behalf of an, an accountancy firm. And it, he said at the interview, he said, look, it's really simple. I want my accountant to wake up worrying about my business <laughs> and, <laughs> and to let me know if I should be worrying about something too. You know, it's, it's that simple. Absolutely. So Bev, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I think this is about where to focus your resources. Uh, and I think particularly when times are tough, when resources are scarce, and particularly in marketing where we're used to doing volume stuff, you know, 10,000 leads, <laughs> as we said earlier, that's the wrong answer if your business is in this 80-20 shape. Focus your resources on those companies that are most important to your future growth. Yes, and it brings to mind a a book, a couple of books that have been on the show in recent history by 
Dr. Peter Fader from the University of Pennsylvania. He wrote the Customer Base Audit as well as the Customer Centricity uh, book. And as I was reading through yours, I'm thinking, oh, well, here's one more book. <laughs> and that goes, that's a book you can actually sit down with your CFO and start doing the math, help guide them in how to determine exactly who your most profitable customers are. Because a lot of companies, they, they just don't know, as, as your research indicated. That's right. And I think, you know, if there's one thing you do, and the one the, the reason we put this assessment tool at the back of the book is, you know, get a coffee, get someone from marketing, someone from account management, someone from customer success or service delivery, someone from finance, and just go through the assessment tool. Uh, and and if, if you think an account-based growth strategy is important and right for you, it will that tool will tell you where your gaps are today. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like one thing a listener could do today to put in action one of the ideas from your book. Is there something else that we could give the, a listener to do to, to think about this? Just go and find out who the most important customers are. Yes. If you don't already know. <laughs> And if your finance people don't know, don't throw your hands up and say, well, they don't know. That is, com- I would say that is completely unacceptable. You need to then work with them to help guide them and, and help them. Absolutely right. And, and, and as you've said, sometimes systems just aren't set up to tell you that information, but somebody will know. Somebody will be tracking or will be able to work out, um, you know, over the last three to five years who have been your most important customers and and how much churn is there in there? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So it doesn't mean you have bad financial people. (laughs) It's, it's more complicated than that. They could actually be uh, very helpful for you. And just to mention one other book that was on the show recently, uh, entrepreneurial marketing by Philip Kotler. And they have an entire chapter on why it is so beneficial for the CMO and the CFO to build a deep relationship. And they show exactly how to do it too. So, Bev, looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? Uh, it has to be Professor Malcolm McDonald's. Uh, he's, his marketing planning books have been my Bible for years. Yes. But I also like his key account management book and his book on value propositions as well. Uh, as I said, he's, done, he's written more than 45. But the marketing planning book was my Bible. Uh, when I was at Epson, I was in charge of marketing planning for EMEA. And actually, when I first started working on ABM back in 2003, I was working with Dr. Charles Doyle at Accenture and a few others. And we came to the conclusion that the process, the marketing planning process that Malcolm had written about could be applied into individual accounts. It's the same process. I loved that book. And he talks about the two questions every executive, every board member should know. And I'm not going to tell everybody what they are, but I'm going to include a link <laughs> to his interview on this episode's website page at, at marketingbookpodcast.com. And what's interesting also, not, not to keep talking about Malcolm McDonald, but he has all the academic chops, obviously, but quite a bit, I mean, a very rich uh, private sector experience portfolio. Yeah, that's right. He, he spans the two, which are, uh, isn't always the case, is it? No, and actually his books are rather short, which sometimes telegraphs that an author really knows what they're talking about, and he, his sense of humor comes through as well. So, Bev, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading now that you might have a little more time to read other people's books? <laughs> yeah, I'm reading a book called Transforming the B2B Buyer Journey right now. It's by Antonia Wade, mm-hmm. who is the global CMO at PwC. And uh, what I like about it is that she's questioning the idea of this traditional funnel, which I think is a conversation that's been going on for a couple of years now in B2B. But she's looking at the stages of the buyer journey and what marketing needs to do in terms of content and channels at each stage. So you've got the horizon scanning right up front, you know, how a trend impact in my business. You go through exploring where people are formulating, what's the problem I need to solve here? They start hunting, actively researching the options open to them, and then buying, so shortlisting and selecting suppliers. And of course, then they become a client um, and they want to achieve the outcomes um, that that they bought the, the solution for. So that's where as our customer success conversation comes back in. So that's really interesting. I'd recommend that one. Oh, excellent. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned to your company's uh, site and to your uh, LinkedIn profile. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out to Bev 
in some way to congratulate her on the book and thank her for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. You can see how long and hard I've worked just to get Bev on the show. This is clearly not going to be her last book. She needs to know that it was worth her while. So please let her know that she listened to this interview. With any luck, we'll get her back on the show. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is account-based growth, unlocking sustainable value through extraordinary customer focus. The authors are Bev Burgess and Tim Shercliffe. Bev, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. It's been brilliant fun. Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Shut up! Come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway. Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.